And we have a lot of work to do this morning, so I simply want to get right to it. The Christian life is a race, and that race is finished only through perseverance. That's what the author of Hebrews has been teaching us throughout this book, but especially here in chapter 12. Remember how the chapter began? Look back at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Brothers and sisters, that is a clear word from God of what He expects in your life. If you want to know what God expects of you as a Christian, verse 1 gives you a clear answer. He is calling you to run and to run with perseverance. Our passage this morning represents further instruction on how to do just that. How to run with endurance. You see, this is the kindness of God on display to His people in the Bible. He does not give us abstract information and then leave us to ourselves. No, God's Word is clear. It's clear. You can understand it. It's one of the more comforting doctrines in all of the Christian life. The doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Everything you need for life and godliness and salvation has been clearly revealed in the Bible. And when you come to the Bible with faith empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can understand what the unapproachable Holy God says. It's not abstract. God says to you, run the race. And then He goes farther and says, here is how you do it. That's what this passage is about, friends. It is the Spirit's clear instruction on what perseverance looks like practically in the life of a Christian and in the life of a church. So as we study God's Word today, be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that God wants you to know how to run. He wants you to know. He wants to give you a clear, practical Word so that you might live a life pleasing to Him. This is a kindness of God for which we should be Thankful that He has given us His clear Word for our good. So with that encouragement in mind, let's read together from Hebrews 12 and then let's go to the Father in prayer and ask for His blessing on our time together. You can follow along with me. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward... When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray now, asking for God's grace that we might hear and obey what he has said. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that though you are the holy God who dwells in unapproachable light, you have not remained far off from us, but you have revealed Yourself. You have come near to us in the person of Your Son and in Your Word so that we might know what You are like, that we might be reconciled to You, and that we might then live a life that is pleasing to You, Father. We praise You that You have drawn near. And we praise You, Father, that Your nearness is expressed to us in Your clear Word so that all we need for life and godliness You have given to us.
Help us this morning, God, to hear the word with ears of faith. Help us to obey, Father, by faith. Help us to run with endurance. Give us eyes to see the clear instruction you have provided in these verses. Father, keep me from error. May my words only be true, Father. May they be true in connection with the Scriptures. May I speak only the things that your word has spoken. Give your people discernment that we might know truth from error. Build us up in the truth, God, so that we might indeed run with endurance all the way to the end to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. We said a moment ago this passage gives clear instruction on how to run with endurance. And I'd like to draw your attention to three instructions in particular. Three instructions in particular on how to run with endurance. The first is found in verses 12 and 13. Believers must take strength from God's work. Believers must take strength from God's work. You'll notice in verse 12, the author picks back up with the running imagery. He mentions hands, knees, and feet. All necessary components for running well. But you'll also notice in verse 12, there is a problem. It's the problem of weakness. The author describes the hands as drooping and the knees as weak. Friends, that's not a description of a thriving runner striding confidently toward the finish line. That's the description of someone who struggles to keep going. You've probably seen people running like this because you might have seen me running like this. Arms kind of dangling at my side and feet plodding along. That person could stop running at any moment. And that's the author's point. He could stop running at any moment. He's concerned his readers fit this description. Their hands are not churning forward but drooping. Their knees are not strong but weak. In other words, he's concerned that their running is losing its endurance, that their faith is waning in perseverance. So how does the author respond? Well, naturally, he gives them a clear exhortation. He says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. That's that's pretty straightforward. Don't stay in that exhausted state. Instead, find some strength so you can get back to running hard all the way to the end. You see, it's a clear instruction. Lift them, strengthen them, go. Now, at this point, we need to slow down and ask the necessary question. This is one of those questions you probably wouldn't ask if you're just kind of breezing through the Bible and reading quickly. You need to slow down and ask these kinds of questions. This is the kind of question that's vital for getting the passage right. Where exactly are these tired Christians supposed to find this strength? Where are they supposed to get it? When you simply read the verse, you might be tempted to think the author is giving them the spiritual equivalent of what my little league coach used to say whenever I got hit by a pitch. I got beamed a lot in little league. That's what happens when you're three foot seven. I get beamed a lot, and then my coach would come over and he'd be like, Yeah, I'm sure it hurts, but buck up and get back out there. That wasn't always helpful to my nine year old self. And if we're not careful, we might think the author of Hebrews is saying something similar. Just buck up and get back out there. But that would be a horrible misunderstanding of this exhortation. The author is not telling his readers to spiritually buck up. He is not telling them to find strength in themselves. Instead, he's directing their attention away from themselves and toward God's work on their behalf. And friends, this is so important. I want you to see exactly how it shows up in the passage. There are two specific ways. 
So let's note them together. How the author directs us away from ourselves and towards God. There's two ways. First off, the author highlights God's work to sustain us. His work to sustain us. Notice again the words of verse 12. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. That phrase actually comes from the Old Testament. From Isaiah 35. In that chapter, the prophet Isaiah wrote to God's people who were enduring exile. You remember your Old Testament history, right? The Israelites broke the covenant, so God kicked them out of the land. And He sent them away in exile. First to Assyria, then to Babylon. Isaiah is writing to these people who have been taken, from ba- taken to Babylon, far away from the promised land. And in that strange foreign place, they were struggling to keep faith. Or to use the language of Hebrews 12, they were struggling to run. And in that struggle, Isaiah wrote the words that you hear in this verse. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. So that phrase comes from Isaiah. He wrote it. But, and this is the key, that's not all Isaiah wrote. Immediately after telling God's people to take strength, Isaiah went on to write this. Listen to this. This is astonishing. The comfort. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. God will come and save you. Now, do you hear the source of the strength? It's not in the people, but in their faithful God. He will come again and He will save them, even though they're running hard in the midst of exile. Brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews is making that same point to us. He uses the phrase on purpose so that you would remember God's Word through the prophet. Yes, we're called to run right now. And yes, our race is hard, but there is good news. God is coming again. And He's coming to finish what He started. We have to run now, but we won't run forever. There is a day coming, a great and glorious day, when the sky will split and Christ will descend. And on that great day, our race will be finished. We will see the Lord Jesus face to face. I can't even imagine. We will see the Lord Jesus face to face. And in that moment, our weary bodies will be transformed to be like His glorious body. Friends, that's where the race ends for God's people. The running is hard now, but the outcome is certain. And that certainty should give us strength to keep going. Imagine I took my sons out into the backyard and I told them, I promise you, I promise you, there is $1,000 buried in this yard somewhere. To an 8-year-old and a 6-year-old, $1,000 is like a gazillion dollars. Okay? If I told them, I promise you there's $1,000 buried in this yard somewhere, I guarantee it's there. All you have to do is dig until you find it. And then when you find it, it's yours. All you got to do is dig. Now, it would take them a while to find the money, and they would get tired at points. But even still, the certainty of their father's promise would keep them digging. You see? When their hands got tired or their backs got sore, they would find renewed strength from the fact that Dad said the money was there, and so I'm going to keep going. Friends, that's something of how God's faithfulness works in our perseverance. The Father has told you ahead of time, your race ends in glory. I promise you it ends in glory. I don't lose anyone. Therefore, run. Run. When your hands get tired and your knees get weak, the faithfulness of God becomes your strength. He works to sustain us and therefore we run. 
That's the first way. The author's not finished. He points us to a second source of strength. God's work to guide us. God's work to guide us. Look at verse 13. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. That language of straight paths also comes from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Proverbs. Probably Proverbs chapter 4. It could come from several places in Proverbs. It describes a father teaching his son how to stay on the path of wisdom. And the point is simple but powerful. The right path is the straight path. The right path is the straight path. Don't turn aside to the left or the right. Run on the straight path. The one given to you in God's Word. You see, the author of Hebrews knows that we often get weary because we become distracted. Instead of focusing straight ahead, we start looking around left and right, and we start thinking, man, like that person runs faster than me, or that person's course doesn't look as hard as mine, or whatever, right? We get distracted, and then we get weary. We take our eyes off the prize, and we get tired of running. The author's point here in verse 13 is that in those moments, there is strength to be found in simplifying the Christian life and just getting back to the straight path. God has not left us on our own. He's given us clear guidance in His Word. What's the straight path? Daily faith in Christ. Regular confession of sin. Purposeful obedience to the Scriptures. Fellowship with God's people in the church. Friends, if you do those things and you do them faithfully, by grace, through faith, for the entirety of your life, you're running well. It's four things. It's the straight path. It's the straight path. So when you sense that weariness creeping in, which it does for everyone, man, you just get tired of running sometimes. When you sense the weariness creeping in, check to see if you've veered off the course. Check to see if you're following the straight path. Return to that straight path and take strength from God's work to guide you through His clear Word. So I hope you can see the author is not telling us to buck up and get back out there. That's not how weary runners keep going. He's telling us to fix our eyes on God's work for us. He sustains us and He guides us. And if we will fix our eyes on His work, then we'll find renewed strength to keep running. In order to persevere in the faith, believers must take strength from God's work. Let's look now to the second clear instruction for perseverance. Believers must pursue peace with others, but war with sin. Pursue peace with others, but war with sin. We're looking here at verse 14. And the key word is right there at the beginning of the verse. Strive. Strive. That is a command. And it covers everything else In the verse, believers are to strive after certain things. Now, this is a much stronger word than what is typically found in the New Testament. Scripture often calls believers to seek after certain things, but this is stronger than that. Striving is stronger than seeking. The idea is to run after something the way an Olympic runner pursues the gold medal. He doesn't just wake up on the day of his race and decide, you know what, I'm going to get a gold medal today. He prepares every day, training, planning, prepping. All of his life is focused on the goal. That's the kind of striving that the author is talking about here. It's not just a casual seeking. It's a purposeful pursuit that encompasses the entirety of your life. 
As the verse goes on, you'll notice the author tells us what to pursue or what to strive after. Again, God's word is clear. He doesn't leave us in the dark. Believers must pursue peace with others. As followers of Christ, our calling is to strive for relational harmony. That's what that word peace means. Relational harmony with those around us. This certainly includes, friends, people we encounter in the world. I'm afraid we may have forgotten this, but we should be reminded Christians should not be known as contentious. Convictional, yes, but contentious, no. We should strive for peace with people that we encounter in the world, so long as it depends upon us, like the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12. But the command here in verse 14 is primarily directed towards our fellow believers in the church. When he says peace with everyone, he's talking primarily about the believing community. What a tarnish it is on the gospel when brothers and sisters in a church live in a state of discord and strife. That kind of disharmony gives the world a false picture of the gospel and it dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, for the sake of our witness and for the glory of Christ, we must purposefully pursue peace with one another between you and me. And one another. You see, peace doesn't happen naturally. We have to work for it, protect it, and cultivate it. This kind of atmosphere, the author says, is essential for our perseverance. Strive for peace. Now, receiving the command is only half the battle. The real work begins with application, with living out what God has called us to do. So, natural question is, how are we to do this? Specifically, within the church. What are some ways we pursue peace with one another? Well, there are many things we could say at this point. And perhaps that would be a good subject for conversation in your community group or over lunch with your fellow church members today. How do we pursue peace within the context of a church? There are many applications we could make. But my time is limited up here, so I just want to offer two ways that we can pursue this kind of peace in the context of a local church. Just two ways. Number one, live with a radically others-focused perspective. Live with a radically others-focused perspective. Or, to use Paul's language from Romans 12 that Hope read for us, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Radically others-focused. So often, a lack of peace within the church is due to the fact that we have preferred ourselves over one another. I didn't get what I want, or you are standing in the way of what I prefer, and as a result, we get angry, we become jealous, we grow bitter. It's a horrible outcome because it's one that can be avoided by going back to the beginning, back to the root, and cultivating this preference for others. The formula is not complicated, friends. Unity in a church flows from brothers and sisters preferring each other instead of themselves. Unity in a church is simply the work of brothers and sisters empowered by the Holy Spirit to prefer one another over themselves. That's where unity comes from. When you look throughout the New Testament, this is foundational to biblical community. Think of Paul's words in Philippians 2. Each of us must look not only to our own interest, which is natural but also to the interests of others, which is supernatural and a work of the Spirit among us. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, as you prepare 
Let's just think about Sunday right now. There's other days of the week and we could think about it, but let's just think about Sunday right now. As you prepare to come to church each Sunday, maybe even as you drive here, take a moment and purposefully pray, asking the Spirit to help you prefer others. Ask Him to help you see the needs of others ahead of your own needs. And then when you get here, have your ears and your eyes attuned to the needs of one another. Don't just ask, what can I get from church today? Which is not a wrong question, by the way. I'm not saying it's a wrong question. You just need to ask other questions too. Whose burden can I bear? How can I serve the needs of others? By God's grace, if we will cultivate that kind of others-focused perspective, if we will outdo one another in showing honor, then we'll be on our way to pursuing peace within the church. So I think that's the first way we can obey the command to strive for peace with everyone. Radically others-focused. One more application for peace with others. Quickly seek reconciliation. Quickly seek reconciliation. The reality is, despite our best efforts, we will sin against one another. I hate to burst any bubbles you might have had. But if you're around the church long enough, somebody's going to sin against you. We'll be selfish. We will be arrogant. And we will hurt one another in our sin. And that means conflict within a church is, in one sense, inescapable. The question is not, will I experience conflict with a brother or sister? The real question is, how will I respond when I experience that conflict? And the answer is we must quickly seek reconciliation. And by reconciliation, I mean the confession of sin and the asking for and granting of forgiveness. The confession of sin and the asking for and granting of forgiveness. And I mean using those words exactly. I sinned against you in this way. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? In God's kindness, that process of reconciliation helps heal conflict and sever the root of bitterness. It doesn't magically make hurt go away. I'm not saying that it's like a silver bullet. There are no silver bullets in Christianity. It doesn't make the hurt go away. But it does begin the process of restoring peace within the relationship. So when the evil one then comes and begins to whisper to you again, that person doesn't really care about you. Remember what they did that one time? You can say, no, I forgave them. They asked for my forgiveness and I forgave them. There's nothing there to grow. And you... Now, you might have to do that process of speaking truth like a thousand times, but it's still, the process has begun. Quickly seek reconciliation. So I'm pleading with each of us, brothers and sisters, regularly ask the Spirit to keep your heart soft towards conviction for sin. Ask Him to keep your heart soft towards conviction for sin. It is an incredible grace of God to have a soft heart and a tender conscience. Those are good things. Ask for that gift. And then when the situation arises, and it will, quickly seek reconciliation with your brother or sister. To run with endurance, you must pursue peace with everyone. Each, with everyone, the text says, and that begins here in the church with one another. Now, if you look at verse 14 again, you'll notice in the second half of the verse, there is another pursuit. The author says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. While peace, should be, while peace should characterize our relationship with others, peace should never be our attitude towards sin. Our attitude towards sin must always be war. 
Until Christ returns, we are in a fight. It is the fight for holiness, for Christ-like character to be displayed in our lives. Here in verse 14, the author reminds us of how essential this pursuit is. I don't understand people who say, I wonder why my church talks about sin so much. Because without holiness, no one is seeing God. Sanctification is not optional, but necessary. Only those who are sanctified and growing in holiness will see the Lord. Let me put it to you as clearly as I can. A person who does not give evidence of the Spirit's work in his or her life will not inherit eternal life. That person is not going to heaven. The Lord God is perfect. And only those who share His holiness will enter His presence. Is that your mindset, brothers and sisters? Do you see sanctification as eternally important? I know in my own life, I have a tendency towards slackness. I have a tendency to find a comfortable existence with sin. Let me explain what I mean there. I'm not necessarily giving in to sin, but I'm not purposefully trying to kill it either. I'm just kind of there in the middle as though things were comfortable and okay. Is that you? Are you at ease? Or are you making war? And if you are at ease, then let verse 14 be a challenge to you. This is a kindness of God. Again, that His Word is clear. If you are at ease, He's giving you a clear Word. Pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Don't simply hope for holiness. No one stumbles into Christ-like character. It doesn't just happen. Holiness is attained. Holiness is sought. Holiness is pursued. Someone somewhere said that holiness is a harvest. I like that. Sow good seed reap a harvest of righteousness. By God's grace, let's give ourselves to that pursuit. Let's confess our sin. Let's resist sin. Let's memorize God's Word as a means of making war. To run with endurance, you must make war on sin, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now at this point, someone might be thinking, Jeff, you're making this sound like my salvation is up to me. I thought salvation was by grace through faith. So why all this striving talk? Why all this pursuing? Why all this necessary language? Well, it helps to remember that the Bible talks about holiness or righteousness in two different senses. There is positional holiness or positional righteousness and there is practical Holiness or practical righteousness. Positional holiness refers to your standing before God. It is not based on your work, but on the work of Christ. God sees you as holy and righteous because of Christ's righteousness given to you by faith. That's positional holiness. That's positional righteousness. Your standing before God. Your identity. How He sees you. Practical holiness, however, has a different nuance. It refers not to your standing before God, but to the progress of grace in your life. Practical holiness is the outworking of Christ's character in your everyday living. You become more patient, more humble, more servant-hearted. In short, you become more like Jesus. 
This too is a work of God's grace. But it is a work God empowers us by the Spirit to join in with Him as well. Because we are righteous in Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we now have the ability to run hard after holiness. Before conversion, I had no ability to say no to sin. Following conversion, I have the ability to say no to sin. That's the good news of the Gospel. You can run. You've got to understand the difference between the two to get verse 14 right. The author of Hebrews is talking here about practical holiness. He is not saying that our position before God is dependent on us. Let me say it again. He is not saying our position before God is dependent on us. If you belong to God by grace through faith in Christ alone, then your position is secure in Christ. You are counted righteous in Christ by faith. So the author is not saying our position is dependent on us. He is saying that in light of that position, we must pursue holiness in our daily lives. This is always, always, always how God's grace works. It gives us what we cannot earn and then empowers us to do what we would not do. Run. We're not earning our standing before God. We're living out that standing through the pursuit of practical daily holiness. So again, in light of the fact that God has given you the righteousness of His Son, in light of the fact that you cannot lose that righteousness or diminish it, in light of those truths, the author of Hebrews says, make war. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So, that's the author's second instruction for perseverance. Believers must pursue peace with others, but war with sin. Let's consider the final instruction from this clear text. Believers must take responsibility for the health of the body. Believers must take responsibility for the health of the body. Look at verses 15 to 17. These verses are a warning against the sin of apostasy. The sin of falling away from Christ and rejecting God's grace in the Gospel. The author has given us a number of these warnings throughout the book. And here in chapter 12, he gives us another warning. What makes this warning unique is the escalation from one verse to the next. Verse 15 is sobering. Verse 16 is more so, and verse 17 rounds it out. It escalates. With each verse, the warnings become increasingly serious. So notice how this works out in the passage. In verse 15, the author says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's the same thing the author said in chapter 4 when he warned us against failing to enter God's rest. It's also the same thing he said in chapter 6 when he warned us against falling away so as to cut oneself off from repentance. It's the same warning. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The author keeps going. Look at the second half of verse 15. And notice how he increases the stakes. He writes, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That phrase, root of bitterness, comes from the book of Deuteronomy. 
and it describes someone who turns from God and embraces idolatry and then leads other people astray too. That's what the root of bitterness is. It's not talking about bitterness in your heart towards another believer, though that could certainly be included. It's talking about a person who rejects God and then leads others to do the same. The author of Hebrews picks up that Deuteronomy image and he uses it to warn his readers against the devastating effects of falling away. To turn from Christ is not only destructive for your eternal soul, but it can lead to destruction for others as well. Let this be a sobering reminder to us, brothers and sisters. Sin spreads. It does not remain isolated. In fact, sin cannot remain isolated. It's like cancer. Its nature is to spread. First in your life, but then systematically throughout an entire church, wrecking people's lives and destroying a church's witness. And if you think I'm overstating this, I am absolutely not. Look again at verse 15. It's a singular root. One root of bitterness and many become defiled. You see? Many become defiled. And that word defiled means profane, considered unholy, cut off from God. It's absolutely that serious. Friends, this is why things like church membership and redemptive church discipline are such vital practices within a church. We often associate things like membership and discipline with stale discussions of church polity that only boring pastors care about. But nothing could be further from the truth. Church membership and redemptive church discipline are vital for gospel witness. And even more than that, they are vital for the health and protection of a church. Sin spreads, and therefore both individuals and churches must be ready to deal with sin as the Bible teaches. It's absolutely that serious. Still, the author's not finished. He takes it to yet another level with the most sobering Old Testament example of all, Esau. Esau. Look at verse 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Remember, friends, what Esau's birthright was. It was the inheritance of receiving the covenant promises that were given to Abraham. That's the birthright. It's the promise of God's redemptive work. And Esau says, I think I'll take lentil stew over God's redemptive work. For a single meal, Esau preferred the comforts of this world over the promise of God. That's the author's point here. It was about more than a meal. It was about Esau's allegiance, Esau's faith, or lack thereof. Would Esau trust that God's blessing was more to be desired than this world? Or would he choose the world over the promises of God? Esau chose the world. And that choice revealed his rejection of God's grace. And lest we are prone to minimize Esau's decision, the author clearly reminds us of the consequences. Look at verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, let's be careful here. If you have the ESV in the last line, it has that little pronoun, it. You see it? What's the reference to it? Is it repentance or is it the blessing? What was Esau seeking? He wasn't seeking repentance. He was seeking the blessing. 
So you could say, he found no chance to repent, though he sought the blessing with tears. The author is not saying that Esau really wanted to turn back to God and God wouldn't let him. That's not what he's saying. Rather, the author, the author is saying that later, Esau wanted to get his blessing back, but he found no opportunity to undo what he had done. There's no go, there was no going back. In other words, he had rejected God's purpose in such a definite way, it was done, it was sealed, it was finished. That's the point of verse 17. It's a sobering reminder of where sin and unbelief can lead. Now, what is the application for us from this series of warnings? Well, first of all, and most importantly, the author intends to remind us of the eternal consequences of perseverance. I've said it over and over, but I'm going to keep saying it. Keep running, brothers and sisters. Keep running. I used the illustration from my former pastor when we were in chapter 6. These warnings are like signs on a mountain road telling you, caution, bridge out ahead. If you keep going, you're going to die. So when you see the warning, you read it, and you're like, I don't want to die. So you turn around, you go the other way. The warnings are intended to motivate us and compel us to keep running. There is grave danger in falling away from Christ for it reveals you did not know Him in the first place. So keep running. Keep trusting. Hold on to the Gospel and believe God saves all those who trust in His Son. But there's another application here as well, and it's this. Vigilance is a community project. Vigilance is a community project. Notice the community language of the warnings. Take verse 15, for example. It's not just see to it that you individually do not fail to obtain the grace of God. It's see to it that no one, no one in your midst fails to obtain that grace. So you're watching out for yourself and for anyone else who needs help. It's a community endeavor. If you see a brother or sister in the church drifting away, then you must go and plead with them to keep running. That's not being nosy or intrusive. That's loving them. That's an act of love. And it's an act of love that we are called to as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the takeaway from this warning. Vigilance is a community project. Here at Midtown Baptist, we express our commitment to this community project in our church covenant. The covenant expresses our promise to take responsibility for the spiritual health of the body. In that sense, our church covenant is both a promise and a guide. It is a promise of what we will work to do as church members, and it is a guide for how we will exercise care for one another as good stewards of the gospel. This morning, I'd like to conclude the sermon by reading the church covenant out loud as a reminder and a call to ourselves. One of my goals this year is to find ways to have the church covenant more visibly in front of us when we gather together. So, here's one. I'm going to read it out loud as a reminder of what we've promised to do. So, for all the members of Midtown Baptist Church, as I read this, hear again the promises we've made to one another and prayerfully ask the Spirit to give us grace to do these things. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give ourselves to Him, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
we do now, relying on His gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up those who may at any time be under our care and the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, remembering that we have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. We will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. We will be bound by this church's covenant, constitution, and statement of faith in all matters pertaining to church membership and church discipline. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen indeed. Let's pray.